Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, Dee Good evening, Ray. You in American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human God, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks, everyone. Um, The movie The Wizard of Oz is near and dear to a lot of our hearts as children growing up. Uh, Images of coming before the wizard inside the castle, uh, taking in the smoke and the fire and everything else is quite compelling. We all remember the first time we watched The Wizard of Oz and and for some reason despite the fact that after the fact we found out who the wizard, wizard really is there's something ingrained in being exposed to the dynamic of being talked down to, being uh, sternly uh, pointed at uh, the authority, authoritarian spirit in our world is, is alive and strong and uh, a couple of, couple of nights a couple of days ago morning uh, it was in full bloom, full blossom with Netanyahu's speech. Uh, we were all exposed to a quite a show that morning. And uh, here with us tonight, Jim Fetzer is going to deconstruct that speech. We need to have uh, the proper antidote to, um, to that exposure as the world uh, 
gets ready to bend over and swallow a, a, another uh, cesspool of lies uh, with regard to the state of affairs in, in our world, geopolitically, economically, et cetera. So, uh, Jim, uh, prior to the call tonight, did mention that uh, in addition to the links we have in, in the newsletter, which uh, has the hour and 20-minute video they did last night about this, he has just published a Veterans Today article this morning uh, about what he's going to talk about tonight. So please uh, welcome Jim Fetzer. Thank you for coming on on short notice, Jim. We really appreciate it. Very timely uh, topic, and uh, from the likes of uh, your article uh, being spread and shared, if everyone could spread and share this article along with that video link on every platform that you know it would certainly help uh, get the word out about what he's about to share tonight. Thanks, Jim, for coming on. Thanks, Fred. It's really a pleasure. I enjoy very much what you're doing, and I think this program is a very important one that brings out uh, a whole lot of significant issues for uh, that the public ought to be addressing and certainly needs to understand. Uh, the, the title of the article to which Fred alludes is The Netanyahu Speech, a 10-point, that's the numeral 10-point deconstruction, which those who have their computers at hand can, can, can load in. It's on veteranstoday.com. And I'll go through these key points and explain how they essentially refute what Netanyahu had to say, because actually, the more I've assessed it, it seems to me in every single case, uh, anything he said that was significant was not merely misleading, but actually provably false. So the subtitle of the article is that the speech was a masterpiece artfully woven of lies, deceit, and deception. It was obviously very well practiced, very well delivered, and if you were, shall we say, very ignorant of the history here, didn't really understand his role in all of these issues, and were, shall we say, just the least bit naive or gullible, uh, you might very well have swooned. I listened to a, a woman member of the House from Tennessee, for example, and she was literally gushing over the speech. And, you know, I found that rather troubling because we like to believe that our representatives are very knowledgeable. But if you looked at the rousing reception he got, particularly from the Republicans, I think that uh, any belief or expectation we might have had that he would be receiving what you might regard as a a rational response rather than a purely emotional one, uh, we're disappointed. And where Nancy Pelosi has subsequently, you know, made very strong statements, so has Dianne Feinstein, interestingly, since she's obviously a very strong supporter of Israel and a host of others. So we'll, we'll return to the reaction of others as, as we go. Now, I use a photograph of the Capitol contrasted with a photograph of Gaza under attack to suggest that the distance between Bibi's words and reality was like, like that between the Capitol and Gaza. There was just an enormous disparity. I found a, a two-minute summary of his speech, uh, meaning just reduced to some of the most important clips, 
I'm going to presume for the sake of our conversation that you have all uh, heard the speech or at least are familiar with major portions of it, and therefore I'm not going to uh, play it. But we could, Fred, uh, you know, play. I mean, this is only two minutes long. Would that be a good idea, Fred? Uh, should, should, except that I don't know. Uh, if I, can get I don't it. know if we can do that. Uh, Steve, can, can Jim play something on his end via the phone? Give him a minute to unmute because he echoes when he's unmuted. But okay. Well, I'll for I'll forego it. But let okay. me just say right off the bat that one of the stunning truths about the situation is that Iran is truly a peace-loving country and has not attacked any other country since 1775. Now, just to bring out the significance of that date. The, the Constitution, our own Constitution, began its ratification in 1787, 12 years later. George Washington was inaugurated in 1789, 14 years later. Iran has not gone to war aggressively with any other nation in the entire period longer than the history of the United States, which I find simply stunning. Would that could be said of the USA? And yet, of course, we know the, the, the litany of wars in which we have, have engaged, uh, many of which we provoked, is, is simply immense, where even just alluding to the second half of the 20th and the first part of the 21st century, we're talking about you know destabilizing and assassinating the leader of democratically elected countries like Chile, death squads in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, a, a horrendous war in Vietnam that cost 50,000 young American lives and over 2 million Vietnamese, plus the unlawful bombing of Laos in Cambodia, the whole venture uh, that was precipitated by 9-11. I mean, that, it was its design to transform our foreign policy from one in which we at least officially, never attacked any country that hadn't attacked us first, to one in which we became an aggressor nation, and where we are all very familiar with our in, invasions of Afghanistan, of Iraq, Libya. I'll have more to say about that as we continue with our discussion. But Barack Obama, believe it or not, has sent American military forces into 17 different nations in Africa alone. Iran has not attacked any other country since 1775. Now everyone's familiar with the sanctions, but most of the public is unaware that the sanctions are war crimes. They violate the Geneva Conventions of 1949, sometimes referred to as Geneva 4 or Geneva Conventions 4, where Article 33 states, no persons may be punished for an offense he or she has not personally committed. Collective penalties and likewise all measures of intimidation or of terrorism are prohibited. And it goes on to say more how that under the 1949 Geneva Conventions, collective punishment is a war crime. Now, we've done a lot of this in recent times. Our, our no-fly zone over Iraq, for example, 
led to the death of 500,000 Iraqi infants. Madeleine Albright, then Secretary of State, when asked whether the, the sanctions had been worth the death of all those inf infants, reassured the public that indeed they had. But that's, of course, completely outrageous. And the sanctions we're now imposing upon Iran are equally a form of collective punishment that is uh, a, not only a violation of international law in relation to the Geneva Conventions, but itself a war crime. So you've got to ponder the situation we're in here internationally, where we're inflicting collective punishments. You know, this whole business about collective punishments arose in World War I and World War II, where there would be members of a village who put up the resistance uh, to an assault by uh, the enemy forces, and they'd wipe out the whole village. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Cowley in, in Millet was an illustration, slaughtering everyone in the village. Those are war crimes, They're properly qualified as war crimes, but most of us never ponder to consider that we, the United States of America, which we tend to believe upholds the principles of international law, truth and justice worldwide are in fact engaged in very public, very obvious, very blatant war crimes involving very large communities, whole nations, Iraq in the one case, Iran in the other. The third point may be one that is just a bullet between the eyes. Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapons program. Our own intelligence agencies, all 16, reached that conclusion in 2007, reaffirmed it in 2011, and even the Mossad, and how could Benjamin Netanyahu not be aware of this, concluded in 2012 that Iran is not pursuing nuclear weapons. Let me read these more specific statements. Iran probably stopped pursuing a nuclear bomb in 2003, According to the most recently published U.S. National Intelligence Estimate, the consensus of 16 intelligence agencies, including the CIA, Jonathan Trenor, CIA's nuclear bomb sting, said to spur review in Iran arms case, Bloomberg.com, Feb 20, 2015. Benjamin Netanyahu's dramatic declaration to world leaders in 2012 that Iran was about a year away from making a nuclear bomb was contradicted by his own secret service, according to a top-secret Mossad document. In a secret report shared with South Africa a few weeks later, Israel's intelligence agency concluded that Iran was, quote, not performing the activity necessary to produce weapons. Multiple authors leaked cables show Netanyahu's Iran bomb claim contradicted by Mossad. Bloomberg, Feb 23, 2015. Iran does not have a nuclear bomb and is signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Iran has not launched an aggressive war since 1775. Modern Iran has not occupied the territory of its neighbors. All the people ruled over by Iran can vote in national elections. Juan Cole, five surprising ways Iran is better than Israel. Bloomberg, Feb 7, 2015. Bibi wants to destroy this opportunity. He wants more sanctions. 
He wants to win the Israeli elections on 17 March. He might even bomb Iran, which would bring an immediate military response against the United States. Robert Fisk, the difference between America and Israel. There isn't one. Bloomberg, March 1st, 2015. Those are very basic facts of the matter that you did not hear from Bibi Netanyahu, nor, to my surprise, have you even heard from spokesmen for the administration. It seems to me these would be excellent points if they didn't simply reflect the complete hypocrisy of the American foreign policy in relation to Iran, which is predicated on the false proposition that they're attempting to develop nuclear weapons. It simply isn't true. And as I elsewhere raise the question, what would Iran do if it did have the bomb? Uh, it, it couldn't use it offensively without running the risk of national annihilation. That means it could only use it defensively by letting a, a potential attacker such as Israel know that if they were to attack Iran, they might themselves in turn pay a heavy price. But the estimates of death and destruction that would accrue from a, a, an Israeli or American attack on Iran's nuclear facilities are staggering. Um, the estimates include a million Iranian deaths outright. And then as the cloud of contamination swept across Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, another 35 million premature deaths. We're talking about potentially the death of 36 million people. Toward what end? To, to enable Israel to maintain a domination of the Middle East, where its principal motive for this charade appears to be that it wants to keep Iran from expanding its sphere of influence in the Middle East, as though that were something that Israel were entitled to do on the basis of lies and, and cheating and deception. This is the situation we are in. 4A, Iran is entitled to enrich uranium for peaceful purposes, so the United States is violating the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. This uh, Enver Masood, who publishes the Wisdom Fund, has made multiple observations about this, that the U.S. is violating the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty by attempting to block Iran's efforts to produce enriched uranium, provided it is used to produ produce electric energy as Iran states, while the U.S. itself is planning a new generation of nuclear weapons. The 1968 Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty entered into force on March 5, 1970, when 187 parties joined the treaty, including the then five nuclear weapon states, the United States, Russia, United Kingdom, France, and China. More states have ratified the NPT than any arms, other arms limitation and disarmament agreement. Israel, Pakistan, and India have never signed the treaty, but have since acquired nuclear weapons. Indeed, Israel is believed to have the largest nuclear weapons stockpile, estimated from 200 to actually as many as 600, not to mention also uh, chemical and biological weapons, none of which it has ever declared. Uh, so 
there's another way here not mentioned in this summary that the United States has uh, been protecting Israel uh, from UN sanctions and resolutions that are related to its nuclear weapons possession and program uh, by vetoing resolutions. In my opinion, the vetoes the United States has exercised in the United Nations against resolutions on behalf of Israel were typically all the other nations of the world were unified, and it was only because the United States could exercise its veto power as a member of the Security Council that Israel has remained untouched by any of these resolutions. Uh, this may be about to end, however, because uh, an article that only appeared yesterday states that the United Nations is going to make an inquiry into the, the deaths of 1,500 in Gaza, uh, for which Israel is responsible. The actual number in Gaza is over 2,000, where this invasion was hopelessly unwarranted. It was contrived on the basis of the purported kidnapping of three teenagers in the West Bank. But there were Israeli officials who were talking about three teenagers being kidnapped in the West Bank before the event even occurred. It's quite obvious that Israel is very practiced at what we refer to as the false flag attack, to it committing an atrocity and blaming it on another party so it can then take action, whatever action it had planned in the first place, against that other party, in this case, of course, against the Palestinians in Gaza, where the, the effect of the attack was to turn 40% of the habitable area of Gaza into rubble. In other words, this latest incursion reduced the habitable area of Gaza by 40%, and the Israelis have been imposing very strict sanctions against the importation of building materials such as concrete that would enable the Gazans to rebuild what's left of their communities. Number 4B. Iran has signed the NPT, Israel has not. The U.S. is also violating it with new weapons. It, it's a fascinating situation here that you have a, a, a country, Iran, which is not pursuing nuclear weapons, which has signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which does allow inspectors, versus another nation in the Middle East, Israel, which has a vast stockpile of nuclear weapons, which has never signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and which won't allow inspectors. And yet you had the prime minister of that other country uh, uh, speaking from the House of Representatives in, in defiance of negotiations that are in process between the uh, P5 plus one uh, with Iran, over the status of its degree of enrichment, even though all the parties know, in fact, whether they're admitting it or not, that Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapons program. Now, we even go further. When Christopher Busby, who's an international expert on the relationship between uh, cancer and radiation, went to Fallujah, to study what he expected would be the effects of depleted uranium, where about one-third of Iraqi pregnancies wind up in spontaneous abortions or stillbirth, and about two-thirds of those born live, 
have major genetic defects, including, for example, no brain in the cranium, multiple arms and legs, uh, internal organs external to the body, and even more grotesque genetic variations. He was astounded to discover that these effects were not from depleted uranium, but from enriched uranium for a new class of weapons that appear to be neutron bombs, tactical uh, nuclear weapons that are being used by the United States in Iraq in gross violation of the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and where I published an article about it based upon an interview I did with Christopher Busby and Lorraine Moray, who's an independent researcher from San Francisco who has done voluminous work in this area of radioactivity and contamination under the heading, New Bombs and War Crimes in Fallujah. So, you know, when, when we want to think of our own nation as being a, a, a paragon of virtue, that, that's inconsistent with the evidence. There's a mountain of evidence that we are very much at fault here. And I've already, of course, introduced the theme that while Iran has not attacked any other nation since 1775, the same alas cannot be said of the United States of America. Fifth, Israel is the terrorist state. It commits atrocities actually throughout its own history, including in Argentina, where in that instance they were blamed on Iran. Uh, just to suggest how many choices I had here as illustrations, Menachem Begin, who would uh, eventually become a, a prime minister of Israel in his own right, led a gang of Ergon terrorists dressed as Arabs against the King David Hotel in Palestine in 1946 and blew it up, massive destruction, in the efforts to drive the British out of Palestine. A, a couple of other familiar cases. In 1967, the American spy ship, the USS Liberty, which was conducting electronic surveillance of the war between Israel and Egypt, which was then raging, came under attack by Israeli fighter bombers, which torpedoed the ship, repeatedly strafed it, killed something like uh, 95 with uh, about another 40 injuries. They even strafed our seamen in lifeboats, which all by itself is a war crime. Uh, but the whole event was intended to take out the liberty, to sink the ship, which by some miracle survived, to draw the United States into the war uh, on the side of Israel against Egypt. They wound up winning that war handily, uh, the Six-Day War, Moshe Dayan was the hero of the uh, Israeli military. But sad to say, Lyndon Johnson himself was personally involved in this. I'm convinced he was even complicit in the planning. And when the local area commanders sent American fighter jets to the Liberty to protect it, Lyndon Johnson demanded that they be called back. Uh, this is a very blatant act of treason. I wish I could tell you that's the only one in which Lyndon Johnson participated, but he has a very uh, dark history, which has been well-documented, chronicled in meticulous detail by Phil Nelson in his book, LBJ Mastermind of JFK's Assassination, and its sequel, uh, LBJ, From Mastermind to the Colossus. 
which I highly recommend. Now, in 1992 and 93, uh, the Israelis blew up their own embassy in 1992. They claimed it was a car bomb, but the building blew up from the inside out. It killed about two dozen members of the staff and others. Uh, that apparently wasn't sufficiently spectacular, so they attacked their own Jewish community center in 1994, again blowing it up and killing, in this instance, about 84 all because Argentina had been cooperating with Iran in the peaceful development of nuclear energy. Uh, the uh, Argentines uh, ironically invited an Israeli expert to come to study the situation because one of the striking features of the attack on the community center was there was no vehicle anywhere, even though once again they claimed it was a car bomb, not just any car bomb either, of course, because the Israelis were blaming this on Iran, uh, but one where the claim was made the explosive had been so powerful it had blown the automobile into the ground. That was, of course, fantastic to begin with. But this Israeli expert just happened to produce one tiny piece of an automobile which happened to have the VIN number of the car. I mean, talk about your improbable coincidences. Uh, the Israelis have sought to resurrect this uh, claim by having the prosecutor who was originally involved uh, come back to Argentina with a new 350-page dossier that was supposed to make the case against uh, President Christina Kirchner for having been protecting Iranians uh, who were actually responsible and would you believe the, the Sunday before he is to release the report, he's found shot in the head. Uh, the Kirshner administration originally supposed it had been a suicide, but subsequently, in, uh, I'm confident quite correctly, concluded he had been murdered, uh, I suspect by his own superior, who was operating at the behest of the Mossad, where the claim was even made that they found a document in the trash that was an indictment he had drafted to bring to to uh, bring against uh, Christina Kirshner for uh, having suppressed this information. Uh, that it was a flimsy case. There was never going to be anything to it. There was already a mountain of evidence that it had not been done by automobiles loaded with explosives, but had been inside jobs, both buildings blowing up from the inside out. And now that these charges, these fresh charges have been heard by a, a judge in Argentina, he has dismissed the charges. I'm very happy to say that was a completely appropriate uh, decision and consistent with all the evidence where I can assure you uh, cases that are brought in New York City on a multiple uh, basis, including 9-11, have been arbitrarily dismissed by judges. I know one case where uh, a, a man I know very well, I spoke to virtually every single day for the past three years, was being charged with harassment for trying to get information from the dentist who he believed with overwhelming justification had poisoned him with a very toxic uh, benzene fluoride solution. Uh, which he would only he only survived because he was on an unusual vegan diet and drank a huge fruit smoothie when he got back from the dentist because he didn't feel well. That saved his life. There's a huge story here, but he is very dedicated, meticulous. He got toxicologists 
uh, forensic uh, linguists, uh, uh, all kinds of experts involved in this, including myself, because of all my research on assassinations. And he had a, you know, he's got over a thousand files of evidence. And would you believe when the case finally came into court, by prearrangement between the judge and the prosecutor, he was not allowed to introduce any of his evidence or any of his witnesses and was convicted and sentenced to over a year in jail for what would be ordinarily regarded as the innocuous offense of harassment. It's a nonviolent crime. He's rated in prison as a minus one in terms of his propensity for violence. He happens to be working in the, in the prison kitchen now, uh, but he was recently assaulted by an inmate who tried to choke him to death. It just happens he's very strong. He lifts weights, and he was able to wrench the man's arm off of his neck. But, I mean, telling you, I mean, he, he was in the right throughout all of this. Uh, the police refused in New York to even take his complaint for attempted murder against his dentist. And I am personally convinced, and I've now published five articles about this in Veterans Today, uh, that it was because she was a part of an, a CIA assassination ring involving dentists in where the, the complicated uh, compound with which he was poisoned uh, was normally undetectable by ordinary screening. In other words, it, it was a, a custom blend that further reinforces that this was a deliberate assassination that would not have been discovered at all but for his going to multiple labs. I'm just saying that the degree of justice in Argentina here compares very favorably with the degree of justice you would encounter in New York City today. The next point, number six, the granddaddy of them all, 9-11. Israel was complicit in 9-11, brought to us by the CIA, the neocons in the Department of Defense and the Mossad. Uh, those of you who are uh, uh, unaware, though I believe we have discussed 9-11 before on this very program, you have to go back to 1990-91 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The military-industrial complex needed a new boogeyman to convince the American people, pacify them about the continued expenditure of hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars on weapons where we had entertained the belief that now the Cold War had ended, we would enjoy a peace dividend. It was not to be. Benjamin Netanyahu had already published a book entitled Terrorism, How the West Can Win, when the word terrorism wasn't uh, in the, the working vocabulary of Americans at the time. But he wanted to arrange an event where he was supported by the members of the Project for the New American Century that would involve the United States in the Middle East, uh, where, in fact, the members of that think tank, who included Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, uh, Donald Fife, and a, a host of others being cheerled by Charles Krauthammer and William Crystal in their, in their published articles in, in other venues, uh, the idea was to transform American foreign policy from one in which we at least officially never attacked any nation that had not attacked us first to one in which we became an aggressor nation. And as I've already recounted, we have been doing that now in spades. But the idea, the ingenious idea was that just as the, the George H.W. Bush family 
has the principle of uh, OPM, other people's money. They don't use their own money. They use other people's money. The Israelis have the policy of letting the Americans fight their wars for them so that we become deeply embroiled to the uh, tune of, you know, uh, thousands of casualties and, and trillions of dollars expended from our national treasury, uh, all to fight these wars on behalf of Israel. The Rothschild banking empire had a great interest in all of this, too, because since usury is eschewed in Islam, they had a very difficult time getting any foothold. Where I was most struck where, for example, the first action of the rebel band in Libya was to found a new central bank. Uh, when that happened, I knew things were not as they appeared to be any more than they are in a half a dozen other ways, including regard, with regard to the Islamic State, which appears to be uh, a, a, a concocted threat that is to warrant the introduction of American troops on the ground again after Obama had been thwarted when he wanted to lob cruise missiles into Syria uh, in response to the gas attacks, which we were blaming on Assad, but which the Russians documented had in fact been done by the other side, where Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia appears to have been responsible. According to a late report from Thierry Maison, who is uh, quite a brilliant guy, there's now been a transformation in American uh, Middle Eastern policy uh, uh, less than a month old, where now the government believes that maintaining Assad in, in, in power is the right thing for the American government to do, and where if that is true, uh, may lead to the rapid uh, wiping out of the Islamic State, even though heretofore we have been supporting it. Uh, we have American aircraft that were dropping weapons and food and supplies. Uh, the the uh, American forces and ISIS have been taking out, the, the, the troops uh, or forces deployed against ISIS have been taking out the infrastructure in Syria, including bridges, uh, grain elevators, uh, petroleum refineries, all intended to weaken Assad. So I hope desperately that uh, Thierry Misson is correct about this and that we have regained our senses about our Middle East policy. Number seven, uh, no doubt everyone who heard the speech uh, appreciated the multiple appeals to the Holocaust. Uh, this, of course, was to get tremendous emotional uh, leverage here, where recent research, including a book by Nicholas Kohlerstrom, who's an historian of science from the United Kingdom entitled uh, Breaking the Spell, has shown that the claim that millions of Jews were put to death by being gassed in chambers using Zyklon B cannot be correct for the following reason. According to the laws of biochemistry, Human beings are put to death with Zyklon B, which is a form of cyanide, would have bodies turned pink. But we have no reports of pink bodies. And in addition, chambers where Zyklon B is used will turn blue as a function of laws of material science because of interaction. But the only blue walls are in delousing chambers where Zyklon B was indeed being used to eradicate body lice, which were responsible for the spread of disease, 
there's a whole lot more to say about the Holocaust, but I will simply report to you that the number six million uh, Jews in distress or fear of their lives began appearing as early in the international press as early as 1890. There are 236 such references to six million Jews in distress before the Nuremberg Tribunal. Uh, the number itself does not appear to have an empirical or factual origin. If you look at the records of the International Committee of the Red Cross, which was granted access to all of the camps uh, and kept very meticulous records, uh, their total for gypsies, Jews, and the physically and mentally infirm is approximately 296,000. If you rounded that up to 300,000 or even doubled it to 600,000, that's a tiny percentage of the six million that have been claimed. But it appears that the story of the, the, this brutality, uh, the Holocaust, was to deflect attention from allied responsibility for the starvation of inmates of these labor camps, which were located near munitions factories and the like. They had many facilities inconsistent with the idea that they were simply extermination centers. For example, there was a hospital with OBG, OBGY, obstetrical gynecological facilities. There were woodworking shops. There were areas for performing theaters. Uh, there was a, a pool, though I expect that may have been used primarily by the guards rather than the inmates. But if you study a map of Auschwitz, for example, you'll find it has a host of features that are, are stunningly inconsistent with a story we've been given. And, and many of these camps, it's, it's similar. In, in, in Buchenwald, for example, those who maintain you know, the, the visitations uh, have explained how they're so commonly asked to see the gas chambers and have to explain, sorry, there weren't any. In this instance, I have an article uh, about uh, Nick's work because he invited me to author the foreword to his book, and I published it separately on Veterans Today under the title, The Holocaust Narrative, Politics Trumps Science. There's more to the story, but you get the idea here. The, 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 the Holocaust myth uh, has been used as a, a political leverage by Zionists to play on the, a Western sense of guilt and it's gone so far as to make Holocaust denial a, a crime in countries such as Germany. I mean, it's absolutely shocking. My attitude has always been that if the Holocaust were real, then research would sustain it. And if it wasn't, then the world deserves to know. Well, uh, uh, Nick and his collaborators appear to have discovered very significant parameters that limit the scope of the claims that have been made about the Holocaust narrative. Number eight, even PBS recognized that Benjamin Netanyahu is playing politics with Congress. He is engaged in a very tight race uh, back home in Israel uh, where he was neck and neck or even slightly behind his opponent. So it looks as though coming and grandstanding in the halls of Congress was going to give him an edge. It does look as though over the short term, that has been the case because he bumped up by a couple of points in Israel. But my frank belief is that this whole event is backfiring, that it's had the calamitous effect of splitting 
the Congress over Israel, where there had always heretofore in the past been a complete unanimity in the Congress about unqualified support for Israel, now that so many parties are seeing how much they've been played by Netanyahu, how grossly he has been lying about all these matters, how he comes to Congress and seeks to undermine the foreign policy of the sitting president engaged in these sensitive negotiations, uh, I perceive that what is taking place now is a rather uh, large-scale reevaluation of our relationship with Israel, where, may I just mention in passing, uh, General Petraeus has, uh, you know, uh, been uh, pled guilty and is being punished for, you know, having this uh, relationship with his uh, biographer and for sharing with her some uh, classified documents. Frankly, if you were to punish everyone who committed adultery in Washington, D.C., the halls of Congress would be vacant. What's going on here? as that through the NSA surveillance, which is so massive, they discovered that Betrayus, who'd been made the director of the CIA, an extraordinarily influential position, had arrived at the conclusion that it was in the interest of the United States to reevaluate its relationship with Israel, that it was no longer in the interest of the United States, if it ever had been, to prop up Israel and to be such a steadfast supporter. I have no doubt whatsoever that the whole reason for the fall of General Petraeus is because he was violating uh, Zionist intentions and desires regarding the continued relationship between the United States and Israel, which I now believe their own prime minister, ironically, has, has badly shaken. And where it will not surprise me if the Israelis, when they come to their vote on the 13th, don't in fact kick him out of office, because he has done more damage to U.S.-Israeli uh, relations than the rest of the world combined. Uh, and no one else could do the kind of damage that he has inflicted here. Now, number nine. Most Americans aren't aware of the depth of uh, uh, belief in Jewish superiority by many of the leaders of Israel, a particularly striking case is that of Menachem Begin, who led that Ergen attack on the King David Hotel back in 1946 and would become uh, prime minister. Here, here is a, a, a quote uh, that uh, many of us have known about for a very long time, but which I thought would be appropriate to include just because it's so jarring. It, it is so discrepant with what we think is the more or less benevolent and appreciative attitude of foreign leaders toward our nation, especially when we go so far away, uh, out of our way to benefit them as we have with Israel, where, just to mention uh, one of our ongoing practices, according to our own foreign policy guidelines, the United States is not allowed to give foreign aid to any nation that has undeclared weapons of mass destruction. Israel, however, has a vast stockpile of undeclared weapons of mass destruction and yet continues to receive copious quantities of foreign aid from the United States. Here's that jarring quote. Our race is the master race. We are divine gods on this planet. We are as different from the inferior races as they are from insects. In fact, compared to our race, other races are beasts and animals, cattle at best. Other races are considered as human excrement. 
Our destiny is to rule over the inferior races. Our earthly kingdom will be ruled by our leader with a rod of iron. The masses will lick our feet and serve us as our slaves. I wish I could tell you that that was a unique sentiment. I think that particular expression was indeed distinctive to Menachem Begin, but I'm fearful that the attitude is more widely spread where the the most adequate definition of Zionism in the strong sense, as opposed to Zionism in the weak, which could be identified with a positive attitude toward Israel and a willingness to be supportive of the nation, uh, is the stronger combination of a belief in Jewish superiority with a dubious historical entitlement to all the lands of the Middle East from the Tigris Euphrates to the Nile, where that claim has been remarkably undermined by recent research on DNA from Johns Hopkins, which has shown that the occupants of Israel are in fact not descendants of, uh, uh, from Judea, but actually emanate from the Khazar region of what is now Ukraine, so that most of the occupants of Israel are Khazarians and not Judeans, which means that, ironically, uh, the promised people do not have a genetic entitlement to the promised, the, the, the chosen people do not have a genetic entitlement to the promised land. Uh, this is all quite striking and remarkable, all things considered, because when you take into account the additional uh, factor that uh, the distinction of a people as Semites is essentially a linguistic one, it, it turns out all the Palestinian people are bona fide Semites, but because the Israeli population is descendant from the Khazar region, they are not, so that the greatest practitioners of anti-Semitism in the world, ironically, turn out to be uh, the, the Israelis. That's fairly stunning stuff. Number 10, I explained about 9-11 having been brought to us by an orchestrated event involving the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense who by and large came from uh, the project for the new American century into the Department of Defense, the vast majority of whom are dual U.S.-Israeli citizens. Uh, intriguingly, the very first political speech I ever gave was on 15 April 2008 on the grass outside of the Capitol where Benjamin Netanyahu spoke during a Ron Paul Freedom Rally uh, on uh, Income Tax Day, where I gave a, a, a presentation that would be later published under the title 9-11 and the Neocon Agenda, where I explained how these uh, neocons from, from the Project for the New American Century, uh, who had gone into the Department of Defense and had exerted so much influence, not only over you know the planning of 9-11, but getting the United States embroiled in all of these wars for Israel in the Middle East, uh, we're, we're dual citizens, and where uh, how can anyone know that with regard to a dual citizen, their loyalty to the other state doesn't outweigh their loyalty to the United States? So I propose that no dual citizen should ever be appointed to a policy-shaping or decision-making position within the United States government, and where it turns out that individuals like uh, Michael Chertoff, who would become our second director of Homeland Security, is a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, 
uh, Dov Zarkheim, who was a controller of the Pentagon when it went missing, that $2.3 trillion is a dual uh, U.S.-Israeli citizen. It's a bad practice. It ought to be banned. I would like to see it become law, but we're going to have to wait quite a while, it would appear, because of the vast influence of the American-Israeli uh, Political Action Committee. They refer to themselves as a Public Affairs Committee. Uh, where its predecessor, the American Zionist Co Council, uh, w was a target of a JFK move to have them registered as a foreign agent. Jack thought that the Israeli lobby ought to be registered as a foreign agent. He, he was right then, um, but of course his efforts ended with his death on 22 November 1963. No president subsequent to JFK has picked up the issue, but it's an extremely important one. And, of course, we have the massive study about the Israel lobby by Walt and Mersheim, who are eminent scholars from Harvard and the University of Chicago, demonstrating the extraordinary control that the Israeli lobby has over American, the American Congress and especially American foreign policy. So I end here with a talk that Wesley Clark gave at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco where he explained how when he came back from serving as uh, Supreme Commander Allied Forces Europe, that means he was the commander of NATO, to the Pentagon, how he encountered a, a lower-ranking general who, who called him over and says, uh, General, have you heard we're going to invade Iraq? And Wesley Clark said, why? You know, I mean, ha have we shown that they had something to do with 9-11? And the general said, no, no, no. Uh, but we're going to attack him, and, and, and he couldn't explain why either, which left Wesley Clark puzzled. Well, months later, when he would return to the Pentagon again, he encountered the same general, and he said to him, General, he says, are we still going to attack Iraq? And he said, oh, no, sir. He says, it's much worse now. He said, come into my office. He had just received a memorandum from the Department of, from the Secretary of Defense that the United States was now going to destabilize the governments of seven nations in the next five years, including Iraq and Libya, and ending with Syria and Iran. And Wesley Clark again expressed his utter, his utter dismay and consternation that this would come to be the case. He asked him specifically whether this were a classified memo, and when he said, oh, yes, sir. Uh, Clark said, well, then don't show it to me because I want to talk about it. And if he'd seen it, he wouldn't have been able to because it was classified. But here he explains how uh, at the time of 9-11, the United States underwent a foreign policy coup, that this group from within the government took over the government. It was a covert coup. Uh, it was never explained to the public. The people never had the chance to vote upon it. But it took place and it has had absolutely staggering consequences in relation to our policy in the Middle East, which has not only depleted our military, especially with continued rotation after rotation, but also our national treasury, where we've expended trillions of dollars on wars for Israel and has taken an enormous hit to the moral standing of the United States and the world. Uh, if one were to pose the same question, as was posed to Madeleine Albright about the, the, the sanctions, the no-fly zone over Iraq. Was it worth it in relation to all of these wars we have engaged in in the aftermath of 
uh, which it was arranged to, to bring about, I have to say the answer is overwhelmingly negative. No, it has not been worth it. And I will just say, by way of conclusion and opening the floor to questions, that in my judgment, Benjamin Netanyahu has done more to break the heretofore unshakable bond between the United States and Israel than all of Israel's enemies combined. Thanks very much. Bravo. Tim, my God, what a presentation. I just, guys, you know, we are really blessed to have Tim come on this call periodically for just that reason. Uh, In a one-hour-plus presentation, he encapsulated so much truth, so much logic, logic, so much reason, and he's not going to go yet. But uh, anybody out there, comment or question for Jim? Yeah. Jim, thank you yeah, so much. Sam. Go ahead. Yeah, and, Sam. Uh, and Sam, we, we have a lot of people lined up, so so keep it you know down to one or two questions if you could, and then maybe come back around when everybody's had oh, a sure. chance. Okay. Yeah, I got I got a lot of questions, so I'll ask him one question now, but I got about ten or fifteen. Jim, Mr. Fetzer, uh, I don't I don't know if you talked about the Ukraine. Now, Victoria Newland, she testified. She's under Secretary of State, so I don't know why Curry didn't testify before the Congressional Committee. She said she put in the propaganda that Russian troops are in Ukraine. Number one. Number two, Russia shot down the Malaysian airline. And now uh, there's a question you you can talk about Nemtsov being assassinated in Russia. So my point to you is, what is your take on what's going on in Ukraine right now? Well, even Victoria Nuland herself acknowledged that the United States had invested $5 billion to create unrest in the Ukraine. Russian weapons were smuggled into Ukraine to fire on the demonstrators, to blame it on Russians. The the destabilization caused the democratically elected president of Ukraine to flee for his life. Uh, This whole thing was rigged and engineered by neocons, where where Victoria Nuland and Samantha Power, our ambassador to the UN, and Susan Rice, who is Obama's national security advisor, are all well known as neoconservative hawks. In fact, it's fairly remarkable to me how Susan Rice has been carrying uh, much of the case against Netanyahu on behalf of the administration, which I praise, but where many of her other actions I would condemn. Uh, the whole business in Ukraine is, is, is complex, but the objective is to turn one of these uh, you know, Eastern Bloc countries where when Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev negotiated the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, we entered into solemn agreements that we would make no effort to politicize or uh, any of those countries or turn them into NATO nations. Uh, obviously, we have been utterly disrespectful of those solemn agreements. And where in relation to the plane, uh, the Malaysian 17, Uh, We know it was shot down. There are pieces of fuselage that show bullet holes going in and out the same piece of fuselage, implying it was shot down by either one plane from two different directions or two different planes at the same time. Uh, There were reports that the bodies were in an advanced state of decomposition. Uh, My personal opinion is that this is the same plane that disappeared uh, in Southeast uh, Asia, 
so long ago, traces of which were never uncovered. Uh, Christopher Bolin had a report of, uh, of such a plane in an Israeli hangar. I believe the event was staged to distract attention from the Israeli onslaught into Gaza, in that this was therefore another Zionist op, as it appears was the assassination of this uh, uh, prominent critic of of, uh, Vladimir Putin. There's been a tremendous amount of time and effort devoting to attempting to demonize him. Uh, Putin had no reason to take him out. Putin enjoys the highest standing of any politician that Paul Craig Roberts has observed in his life. He has a support of over 80% of the Russian people. And, you know, it was clearly intended to make it look as though he'd been at fault, just as the effort in uh, Argentina was to make it look as though President Kirshner was at fault. Once you start seeing these patterns, it becomes easier and easier to identify. Uh, But in this instance, it appears to have been brought to us compliments of the Kiev government and and in uh, Tel Aviv uh, that he should be he should be assassinated to turn him into a, a martyr for a movement against Putin. It, it's not going to work, but uh, I'm convinced that was the objective. Yeah. Now to, to pursue this a little further. Now uh, I I understand that Mossad was involved in the overthrow of uh, Yom, Yom, the uh, former president. Now, number two is, now, Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk are Jews, correct? Now, my point is, Ukraine is supposedly a Christian nation. Now they have Christians fighting Christians, you know, against the uh, Kiev government troops, against the one in the south. Now, my point to you is, there are a lot of resources in the Ukraine, number one. Uh, Number two, they say that what they're attempting now is to set up the Kazarian Jews, which are not Jews, as a second Israel. In other words, they want to take over the uh, country of Ukraine to make it another second Israel. Well, there are two regions that that they have uh, contemplated. One is a very rich region in Argentina, Patagonia, Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is the Crimea where, you know, the fact that the Crimeans voted to join uh, Russia, I think, just dumbfounded the plans they had in mind, and where if they could precipitate a war between the United States and Russia, they would like to waltz in and pick up the pieces. And and I have also heard of the plans to create, you know, a new Israel in the Crimea, uh, which for, I think, the genetic reason is probably now more uh, more desirable from the point of view of the uh, citizens of Israel than Patagonia. Patagonia is an extraordinary, rich, lush region. I think the Argentines are on to it, though, and would not be pleased. President Kirshner, for example, has in- insisted that joint citizens leave Argentina, which I think is a brilliant stroke. I'd like it to be adopted here in the United States. No, but in, in the Crimea, there's this one uh, Muslim community. I forget what they're called. That's you know they were they got assurance from Russia that they wouldn't be they were deported at one time, and now they're back in the Crimea. I don't know what they're uh, what they're called. Well, you may know you may know more 
about certain aspects of the Ukraine than I, but if we are going to stay on the Netanyahu speech and so forth, we may want to give someone else a chance to ask questions. Yes, okay. I'll come yep. back later. i got other things I want you to talk about. I, I <laughs> Sam, like we're going to have to move on, Sam. Please. Go yeah, ahead. I, I'll come back later. Okay, yeah. Uh, anyone else out there? Uh, I know Miku, uh, Linda McCullough, you're unmuted, and um ladies from Seattle and I've Alan and Henry. I've got a quick question, Jim. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, Mr. Fetzer, uh, what is your uh, opinion of the documentary that Dennis Wise did called The Greatest Story Never Told? Mm. I'm not sure I've seen it, to tell the truth. Tell me about it. I mean, I've heard the name before, but I don't believe I've actually watched it. Well, it's a it's a six-plus-hour documentary on Adolf Hitler called The Greatest Story. Ah, ah. well, six-plus, you know, the the day I have the time for a six-plus-hour documentary. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I listened to you on uh, on Veterans Today, and I'm glad that you're on there. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, it, it, it was something that I watched, and I couldn't get away from it. Okay. Yeah, well, I do believe that, uh, that there is a, a lot of revisionist history needs to be done about Germany and the World War I, World War II, and, and in between. And that is, a, you know, a project for the future, but where I would venture that uh, this six-plus-hour documentary is moving in that direction, a reappraisal of the history of Germany. Right. One one other one other question. Um, what do you think is going to happen with the situation that's going on over in the Ukraine? Do you think that uh, that the Ukraine people are going to wake up and and say, uh, "Wait a minute, we've been hoodwinked," or what? What, what do you think? Well, you got to you got to appreciate that Russia cannot allow the Ukraine to simply fall into the hands of the West. And where Russia has a lot of cards, I mean, look, most of the gas for Eastern Europe comes from Russia. Uh, Ukraine owes Russia a, a, a mountain of debt here in the billions of dollars, and Russia can shut off the gas. Uh, that gets people's attention pretty fast in a winter, okay? So it looks to me as though we're actually... Uh, they're working out a negotiated agreement here that is going to be more equitable and that the, the uh, aggressivity of the Kiev government is receding. But I still say this, this, the, the shooting of uh, Putin's uh, critic was, uh, I'm convinced, uh, from uh, combined effort by Kiev and, and Tel Aviv. Thanks, Jim. Anybody Thanks. else? Thank you, sir. Sure. Thanks, Judy, for unmuting. Uh, anybody else? Mm-hmm. Got a captive audience here, but I guess you've answered a lot of their questions. <laughs> no, no, I got some. This is Sam. I got a lot more questions. Someone <laughs> else. I'm coming back. Well, I, I, I'm going to keep Jim busy for a while. Yeah, we can hey, give you one, one, more, one more opportunity. Let someone else talk. I'll talk later. Okay. Yeah, Jim? Uh, I do have a question. Yeah. When you're ready, I'll just be putting the cue when you tell me when you're ready. So, so you go, go ahead, ahead now. Ask now. Ask now. 
Okay, um, this is this will be quick. I just want to know, have there was uh, there were similar situations, similar stories um, covered, similar topics covered uh, on Jeff Rents' show. Uh, have you been interviewed by Jeff Rents or ENSE? Uh, I've been on Jeff's show several times, and coincidentally, he's having me on tomorrow night to discuss the very topic we're discussing here today. All right, uh, very good. And then that um, report is called the Luchter Report, L-E-U-C-H-T-E-R. Is that correct? There is a Luchter Report. Uh, you'd have to remind me what it covers. Well, I think it, it's an independent analysis of of, uh, of gas chambers, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, oh, and, oh. And, yeah. and you know what? To be honest with you, I don't know what stuff of this is available on the Internet and what isn't, because stuff doesn't get put on the Internet unless somebody puts yeah, it yeah. on there. Well, I, I know Li Nick Kohlerstern. He's a friend of mine uh, very well. Um, he, he, I organized a, a symposium in London in 2010 uh, and visited with Nick at the time. That was on debunking the war on terror at Friends House in downtown London with Kevin Barrett and Jillet Otsman, where Ken O'Keefe, uh, served as our master of ceremonies. Uh, Nick is the leading expert in the UK on the 7-7 London bombing attacks. His book, Terror on the Tube, is now in his third edition. He's a very meticulous scholar. He's an historian of science. He's published, uh, oh, I don't know, eight or ten books, I would say. Uh, my own background is in the history and the philosophy of science. Uh, that's why, you know, the role of these laws, the laws of biochemistry and the laws of material science are so important to me because they exemplify scientific reasoning. Any argument that's predicated on laws of science, physics, chemistry, biology, what have you, is a scientific argument. And there's quite a lot of evidence that substantiates the points I've been making. We have no reports of pink bodies, and the only walls of the chambers that turned blue were those in the delousing chambers where Zyklon B was, in fact, being used. There's a marvelous article, by the way, a short article by Robert Forasson entitled uh, Against uh, Hollywoodism Revisionism that all of you can access easily. It would take you five minutes or ten minutes to read, and you'll understand why the Allies had a problem uh, their mass bombing of German cities, which was, of course, a form of collective punishment, which had not yet been declared to be a war crime, although the Hague Accords of, I think, 1907 did, did move in that direction, also interdicted the railroad lines that were being used to resupply the camps. And as a consequence, many inmates of the camps were subjected to starvation. So to deflect attention from that, they, you know, w w w went about in a fairly imaginative way, bringing in a Hollywood director who shot a staggering amount of footage and then selected very carefully what he would use to present the proposition that Hitler had a plan to exterminate the Jews, <clears throat> which his own highest-ranking uh, uh, associates were dumbfounded to hear because they had known of the existence of no such plans. Uh, there's a book about debating the Holocaust. Uh, they, they, 
that that points out that there's never uh, no document showing that Hitler actually had a plan to exterminate the Jews has ever been found. And uh, I do think that the Allies were doing quite a lot to cover their own uh, dereliction of duty, their own responsibility for a large number of German deaths and use the Nuremberg Tribunal in part as a political instrument in order to deflect it uh, onto Hitler. Uh, so that's part and parcel of what's going on. This short essay by Robert Forasson is completely brilliant, so I highly recommend it against Hollywoodism revisionism. Okay, thank you. I was just going to make the, the last 10-second comment that it's not to be dismissed you know, the way people look, that, you know, you, you have to try to match up what they did with, um, with, with the way that, that, that they look. L-O-O-K. So anyway, all right, um, very good. Thank you. Carry on. Yes, yes, yes. And I recommend Nick's book, you know, Breaking the Spell, which is now available. And, uh, you know, thinking about it, I'm pretty certain he does talk about the Luchter report in the, in the book, um, and he's collaborating with others who have been doing research this. But mind you, it's a hazardous pastime. He was actually thrown out of uh, an appointment he had at University College London for 15 years because he was engaged in scientific research on the use of uh, on, on delousing technology at the end of World War II. <laughs> well, well, hey, thanks. Jim, uh, just, a, just a quickie. I would not downplay this documentary because it, it, it's so it's so well made yeah 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 the one about uh, the rise of Germany and so forth the six hour plus yeah no I, I take that for granted yes it's very seriously done yeah. and it's very professional and yeah. I, I wouldn't downplay that no I'm not I'm just saying I haven't you know six hours available to watch it I mean <laughs> You know what? I, I, if I could find the time, you know, and I appreciate your recommendation. And if I do have the luxury, I'll, I'll, I'll pursue it. Well, I didn't. I didn't want to take the time either, but I did. And let me tell you, it is worth it. Okay, I take your word for it. Yeah, Jim. What's the name of that document? Why don't you repeat the name of the documentary, Jim? Well, what what? No, 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 no. Jim Palmasano. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I muted name, out. Just I, he the wanted name the name of the documentary, Jim. It's on. It's on YouTube, and it's Adolf Hitler, um, and it's called the greatest story never told. Right. The greatest story never told. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Just a few yeah, more. I got. I, I got some more questions for Jim. If no one else has any. Uh, I get it. If anybody else is out there, and then uh, and we're not gonna, we want to we want to keep this kind of to the point with Jim because he's going to be moving on tonight. He's already given us uh, a good hour plus of his time, close to an hour I, and a half. I know, but we can pick his brain for more. I well, think we'll come just, up yeah, for let, more. Let Jim say how much time he has. Who do you? How much time do you want to give for another question? I can, or? I can stay for a while longer. I mean, it's a, it's an opportunity for me to get okay. feedback too. So I'm I okay, appreciate good. it. From my point of view, questions, I value questions greatly. Okay, go ahead. Jim, Jim, this is Hal. I'd like to make a statement and a couple questions out of you. Sure. Um, 
You know, those that win the, these battles and wars usually write the history, and the history is always in favor of putting out the propaganda that they want out. Right. And I and I thank you very much, too, because what's happened in veterans today has been absolutely exciting with Gordon and, and uh, with Preston and that and you yourself. I have got a couple questions for you. And Go I know ahead. You, this isn't the subject that you covered tonight, but this Lee Want this Lee Want and Mike Contrell uh situation is enormous, is it not? Well, let me see if I discern what you're talking about. Lee Wanta was the special ambassador that Ronald Reagan designated to work out with Mikhail Gorbachev the dissolution, the plans for the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Right. And in the process, and I take it's because of his service to his nation, he actually was given a very substantial financial benefit, which as I understand it now, with in- growing interest rates, is in excess of a trillion dollars. I mean, this is really quite stunning. And I, where, heard, I heard in excess of $34 trillion. Yeah, well, it, it, it's a whole lot of money. And what's interesting about it is that Lee Wanta is a very principled guy, and he wants to use it to get the country back on the right track. So well, if, if, question, this, if, if this were to play out, if this were to play out, and I have Preston James is a, is a close friend of Lee Wanta, uh, and Preston is a close friend of mine, so while I've never had any direct contact with Lee Wanta, a Preston's estimate of the man is very high, very positive. And, of course, Gordon, too, holds him in the highest esteem. So I think there might be a potential here for Lee Wanta to make a difference to the nation's history because of a unique set of circumstances. They could change the whole political, uh, uh, um, how I want to say it, uh, atmosphere or the character of our country being back to what it should be or what it was supposed to be as a representation of the people having their own sovereignties back. Yeah, yes. Of course, there are all kinds of hazards. Well, of I mean, course. He could, he, he could be a target of assassination. We could have well, a financial it, collapse so that all those trillions, you know, somehow massively contract in their value. There are all kinds of things going on here. Where yeah, the we're, we're, world, we're, world, we're, worldwide indicators of economic activity have all but ground to a halt. So, that, you know, things are very, very difficult, as I see it. Yeah, well, everybody owes everybody else, and nobody sits at the round table and passes their $100 bill around until everybody's debts are paid. That's the problem. <laughs> You had other questions. Well, the Mike Contrell situation, have you followed that whatsoever at all? Because this well, refre- is, refresh, my, refresh me about that. Well, he was supposedly at one point involved with Lee Wanta at the beginning, and he now went to the Queen of England, the United Nations, and whatever, has filed suits, and he's trying to, what does he call that, the Timber Trust or something? that supposedly would have been holding something. Even Lee can't touch his funds. I mean, this is what's crazy about it. I mean, the guy, if he's worth $34 trillion, why can't he access his funds? It's, it's Yeah, you're getting, you're, you're, you're getting into details where I can't, I'm not in a position to address them. But, but I do think, it's, it's, I do think yeah. Lee Wanta is a very good man and that if he has access to these funds, that he's going to use it for very constructive, unselfish purposes, which is a rarity among the wealthy. 
Well, he's offered to pay off the national debt. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. They couldn't have that, though, could they? They don't want that to happen. Well, if you kept thinking... Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, there'll be a titanic struggle, whatever happens if he gains possession of the money. And I, I have the impression it's 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 going to happen. So we'll see. Well, you keep up the good work, Jim, and you stay on top of it. Your, our thoughts are with you, and I don't know how you get all what you do get done. It's it's mind blowing what you guys have. It's Gordon Duff. I don't even. You must be a hundred of them guys. Hundred <laughs> Gordon is a phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Thanks for those kind words. Yeah. Thanks, Al. Any, anybody yeah. else uh, before we uh, let Sam loose on Jim one final time? <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Sam. And then. Uh, okay. Hey, Jim, I've got a lot of questions for you. Uh, close it now, out here. We'll go back to the Holocaust myth. You agree there were no gas chambers? I mean, with. Uh, Yeah, these were labor camps. They weren't discriminations. They were located in relation to major industrial like munition plants. They were slave labor. Now that's you know that's an undesirable state to be you know slave labor. But I'll tell you, we've got photographs from Auschwitz, for example, that the British even had a soccer team in Auschwitz. So if you go and look at one of the articles I published here when I got into a big controversy in Northfield, Minnesota, because there was a very active band of Zionists who, when I was invited to come up and speak on four different topics, one of which was 9-11, they just set off all the alarm bells and ran a huge campaign against me and the owner of the bar who had invited me to speak, which he intended as a benefit to the community by hosting speakers on controversial subjects. But one of the articles that I published about this, which is entitled, uh, his, his, his bar is named The Contented Cow. So one article about this I published, the three altogether, is entitled Auschwitz, Cows and Bigots in Northfield, Minnesota. And I begin that article with a photograph of the, uh, of the British <laughs> soccer team at Auschwitz. And they're all looking fit as they could be. They're smiling. They're comfortable. They're obviously at ease. These are not people who are facing execution in a gas chamber. Right. They had swimming pools there and grand pianos and everything else. But here's what I'm getting at. Myron Fagan, who was a Jewish playwright in the United States, he estimated 500,000 Jews died in the Holocaust, and most of them died from typhus and starvation and malnutrition. And, and you know, when the Allies were bombing Dresden and... uh, Hamburg and Berlin mercilessly with incendiary bombs on uh, Hamburg and other places. Uh, I would consider these war crimes. What I'm saying to is they decimated those cities. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then we leveled and, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which was also needless. And they were. Uh, you know, the United States. The United States has quite a history for the performance of war crimes on the staggering dimension, greater than any other nation the world has ever known. And there were a lot of. Cr- all there were a lot of Christians. Excuse all of these me, go ahead. Very well covered in the documentary, and that's why it's worth watching. And it will even talk about the Eisenhower camps. Yeah. And the greatest story never told. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, see, I, I second that watching that, Jim, because it's it's got a lot of historical information in these 
Oh, I'm sure it does. Yeah, sure it does. you you get it. You can get it by uh, uh, Adolf Hitler Greatest Story Never Told dot TV. But then I'm going to get not here. Uh, you know, Israel dictates U.S. policy. Number one, we have total control of our policy. Now, how do, what about these Christian Zionists? You know, the Christians that uh, are for Israel because they say now Israel's Israel is a country that's God promised to the Jews and it's been resurrected now. And the Christians say that Israel is God's fulfillment. The present Israel is God's fulfillment. Well, you're getting into some theological aspects. A lot of the Christian Zionists believe in, you know, end times and that there's going to be the great battle of Armageddon and it's going to take place there. And then we're going to have a second coming of Christ. But that's not... I can't really qualify myself as an expert on any of those subjects, so I'll just say that, yes, there is a large Christian Zionist element, and there are many uh, Jews, by the way, who are non-Zionists, so that, you know, I think we have to be fairly clear about our definition of the term, because to be anti-Semitic is to discount a a person, uh, their value or their opinions, on the basis of their ethnic orientation or their religious uh, legacy, uh, I don't do that. Uh, I am not uh, anti-Semitic, as that term is properly defined, but I am adamantly anti-Zionist. I think Zionism has had a very damaging influence on the history of the world, particularly in the 20th and now into the 21st century. Yeah, but if you criticize Israel now, you're considered anti-Semitic, according to no. They play they play propaganda. that game. You have to refuse. <laughs> you have to refuse to accept it. So you know how many times when the 9/11 you know. movement was being criticized out in Chandler, Arizona. This was about I don't know 2009 or something. Uh, there was a reporter there who was attacking one of the organizers because he'd done some research on the Holocaust as being anti-Semitic. And I explained then, as I explained subsequently in an article I published, which was entitled, Is 9-11 Research Anti-Semitic? That you have to distinguish between uh, being anti-Zionist and being anti-Semitic, and that we are not anti-Semitic. And if there's a mountain of evidence that Israel did 9-11, and there's a summary of it right there embedded in the article, and there's more to it, uh, Preston James and I uh, co-authored an article entitled, Peeling the 9-11 Onion, Layers of Plots Within Plots. Nick Kohlerstrom, whom I mentioned before, has authored an article entitled 9-11 in Zion. What was Israel's role? Gordon Duff has authored an article entitled Mapping 9-11, the Fort Lee Mystery, because a whole lot of the activities on the ground, which involved uh, Israeli assets, Mossad assets, were, diver- were directed at attempting to blow up the George Washington Bridge, the Holland Tunnel, and the Lincoln Tunnel. So uh, Gordon has a quite brilliant article about all of that there. Uh, there's just a mountain of evidence about Israeli complicity in 9-11. And, uh, you know, that, that was what they were worried about in Northfield. They didn't want me to address any of that. And indeed, uh, you know, that's a kind of a common reaction. That's a, that's a secret uh, that that is virtually on a par with uh, the re- more realistic assessments of the Holocaust. So, yeah. Okay. Now I, I pursue this a little further. Now in Auschwitz, originally they said four million people were killed there. Now they had a placard 
set up that says only one million people were killed there. And that included Poles, Jews died, uh, Jews died there, Poles, and as well as gypsies. Yes. Now, can you comment on the Talmud and the protocols of learned elders of Zion? Well, I can only say that those friends of mine who have read them are convinced that they're the keys to understanding the deeper roots of Zionism and that uh, while the protocols are being claimed to be, uh, you know, a forgery, uh, that they actually appear to be something of a blueprint as to what's going on. Uh, throughout the 20th and the 21st century. So my my disposition at this point in time, uh, though I have not gone through them, I'm, I intend to, that's one of the highest on my agenda for reading is that the protocols of the elders of, of Zion is that they're probably uh, authentic. I mean, I'm inclined to, based upon circumstantial evidence and conversations I've had with others about them, but I will further confirm my views when I, study this material more directly. Oh, what about the Talmud? Are you familiar with the Talmud? Well, that's a whole you know, history of, 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 of Jewish theology, and, and the Talmud, I gather, has you know, a lot of rather uh, uh, nasty things in it, <laughs> including attitudes toward non-Jews that are highly uh, condescending and uh, you know, not inconsistent with what we heard from Menachem Begin about his attitude toward uh, the other races, as he puts it. Yeah. Now, here, here's something, Jim, which I've, I've read before. Now, maybe you, you have information on this. Uh, when there was when this one Jewish American was head of the Pentagon, I forget when, uh, $3.5 trillion was missing from the Pentagon and supposedly it ended up in Israel. Well, you're talking, about Dub, you're talking about Dub Zakheim, who's the controller of the yeah. Pentagon. The, the, the day yeah. before 9-11, yeah. Donald Rumsfeld announced that the Pentagon was missing $2.3 trillion. Now, yeah. it just so happens that on the, 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 the day of 9-11, the west wing of the Pentagon was attacked. It had just been reinforced. It was the only wing of the building that had been reinforced. It was largely bereft of personnel and files, except for the budget analysts, financial experts, and accountants whom Rumsfeld had directed there so that they could track the missing $2.3 trillion. I can hear him saying to the section chief, I want you to be sure to be there early in the morning with all the documents and records because I, it's very embarrassing for me to have to admit to the American people we're missing all that money and we need to find it. What he was, in fact, doing was setting them up because that was the wing that was hit, and three dozen of these people were killed uh, uh, in the Pentagon explosion, it was not hit by a plane. It, it may very well have been hit by a missile, but most certainly there were explosives set there, and they set, were, set, were out to destroy all these budget experts and the, and, and the records for the missing $2.3 trillion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there were no plane parts. I, they never showed any plane parts. And that Colonel, George, tell- Colonel, George, Colonel George Nelson, U.S. Air Force, retired as observed of the millions of uniquely identifiable uh, components from those four aircraft. The government has yet to produce even one. Right. That, the tails would have broken off outside along the, with the wings. Yeah, I understand. I, I read where a missile was involved. Now, but see, yeah, there was $2.3 but the total was $3.5 trillion. Now, what I'm getting at is under Bush, because we went to Iraq, you know that was a misadventure, but that was a that was a false flag. Uh, 
Bush, the, the federal debt went from five to ten trillion, and then under Obama, it's ten to eighteen trillion. So if you didn't have these stupid wars we've been fighting, plus that three and a half trillion, we'd only have a debt of about one and a half trillion dollars. Well, what it would be absent the wars is significantly lower. You know, being very precise about how much that would be is uh, anybody's guess. But it would be marvelous if Lee Wanta were to come into this massive legacy that he would use it for the benefit of the republic. Maybe we could regain some degree of control over our own lives. But that requires, first and foremost, getting rid of electronic voting machines. Many of you may be hearing how Scott Walker is being uh, heralded at these uh, you know, Republican meetings and so forth. He, he, he's... Uh, a very uneducated, uh, unprincipled uh, person who's done immense damage to Wisconsin. But most importantly, he has this reputation as a political superman because he survived a recall election and then won a re-election against a very good candidate. Well, there was an historic turnout, which where historic turnouts favor Democrats. We had uh, Michelle Obama twice. We had uh, Barack Obama and we had Bill Clinton in here. The Democrats were fired up. Uh, this was an election for the Democrats to win, uh, running away. And yet we find in Milwaukee County, which is a center of the Democratic uh, uh, influence in the state, that the, the greater the vote, the greater the proportion of the vote that went to Walker. That's a sign that the vote was being stolen using electronic voting machines. And I published on this with a brilliant statistician by the name of Richard Charnin, who's published a book you can find online about the theft of elections using voting machines, where we documented the way in which the, these elections, and it includes the recall election, were stolen on behalf of Walker. He's supported by the Koch brothers, who have billions. I mean, it's easier to buy uh, voting machines uh, than it is to you know, convince voters to vote for a mediocre candidate. Yeah. But that's what's going on now. And he's, of course, trying to bolster his credentials for the extreme right of the Republican Party for the primaries by now introducing draconian measures against a woman's right to uh, abortion. And he's now, they're fast-tracking the right-to-work uh, laws. He, he began by cracking down on the public unions. All of this is very harmful to the history of Wisconsin, which has been a pro-labor state uh, since the 1800s. I mean, it's, a, it's an awful situation we're in. Yeah, he's also come out as being an avid supporter of Israel. Well, I hadn't picked up on that yet, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just he, recently he, read that. The article yeah. where I published about this is entitled Voter Fraud versus Election Theft, uh, the Wisconsin's Governor Scott Walker. You can find it online in Veterans Today. I think uh, I've been trying to get it out. I sent it to the Government Accountability Board here in Wisconsin, which oversees elections. And I know they received it, but they've done nothing about it yet. But the, he's politicizing everything here and making quite a mess of a once great state, I'm sorry to say. Okay. Now, Jim, Jim a couple questions here. Now, uh, on 9-11, Saddam Hussein had no connection with al-Qaeda, no connection with 9-11, and he didn't have any weapons, no weapons of mass destruction. Do you agree that there weren't any Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction, that this was just a false flag to invade Iraq? Well, he had in the past such weapons. Uh, we sold them to him. You got this photograph of Donald Rumsfeld 
you know, shaking the hand of Saddam Hussein, but he was smart enough to get rid of him. The, the right. CIA conduit, the liaison with Saddam Hussein was Susan Lindauer, and uh, Susan reported, and I featured her as a speaker in the, in the Vancouver hearings, which I held on 9-11 in 2012, uh, that Saddam was so eager to avoid war with the United States that he offered to buy a million cars a year for the next 10 years, and he added, if that's not enough, make it 20. Just imagine how much different this country would be if we had taken him up instead of invading Iraq, if we'd let Saddam buy a million cars a year for the next 20 years, it would have been a huge difference. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul Craig Roberts says there was no weapons of mass destruction, and I think Pat Buchanan does, too. Yeah, I think everyone so, agrees. Yeah, Scott Ritter was over this. Launched, at the time that we were claiming he had them, he'd already got rid of them. Right. And of course, yeah, well, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't seeking to obtain yellow cake from Niger either. Ambassador yeah. Joe Wilson was dispatched, discovered it was a fraud, that the yeah. signatures from Italian officials on the documents, uh, the, the officials were no longer in office. And when Joe Wilson published an op-ed in the New York Times the next day, Scooter Libby and, and, and Dick Cheney outed his wife, Valerie Plame, who was running the most important covert operation in the CIA, against the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. And yeah. dozens of people were killed, and the whole network was nullified as a consequence, so that, you know, a government that presumably was eager to contain the proliferation of nuclear weapons took the most severe step it possibly could because they were irritated with Joe Wilson for pointing out that they'd been lying about Saddam gathering yellow cake. I mean, it was really completely disgraceful and corrupt. Yeah. No, no, uh, what the heck, I had one other question here. Uh, yeah, Hitler, you know, Hitler was, he was letting Jews go to Palestine. The, the Jews, the Zionist Jews were making the deals, I, you probably, you could see if you agree with this. Oh, this is I've correct. read this. The Zionist was... Jews were make, making deals with Hitler, and Hitler would, they would send money to Palestine, and then Hitler would let the Jews immigrate to Palestine because the Jews wanted to get a lot of, uh, Jews into Palestine because they were planning to take over Palestine to, to get Israel. Well, well sure. Yeah. You're so right. the, so Hitler I mean, let Jews go to Palestine. What's more interesting than that is that Netanyahu is making an appeal to <clears throat> European Jews to come back to Israel and bring all their worldly goods with them because yeah. Israel is not in very good economic shape. So I think the Charlie Hebdo false flag in Paris, uh -huh. was intended to uh, resurrect uh, a, a belief in uh, anti-Semitism that doesn't really exist, and to suppress the pro-Palestinian movement, which had been particularly strong in, in France, and uh, now they're passing draconian laws against uh, anti-Semitism and the like, you know, it, classic example of uh, manipulating uh, politics and uh, at which the Israelis are so very, very good. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu is a, is a master at all of this. Yeah, something called Satan Yahoo. But do you think that they're resurrecting this Holocaust and anti-Semitism now? It seems like it's in the press more often now. Do you think that's deliberate to, uh, you know, they say no, Holocaust? No, no, no. You, you, you're misreading what's going on. There's a lot of uh, willingness to accept Holocaust revisionism. So that's what they're doing. They're trying to counter it by, okay. I mean, you know, getting Ellie Weasel into the, I mean, that was really gratuitous, you know, and appealing to the Holocaust. 
I mean, Nick Hollerstrom's book is a major advance already all by itself because it's scientific. I mean, that's what we have. So, so what are we supposed to be where if we do objective scientific research because we want to get history straight, uh, uh, does that mean that we're anti-Semitic or that we're, uh, you know, disp- dispensing hate speech? Uh, I hardly think that's appropriate. But, of course, that's the way politically they want to spin it to try yeah. to suppress. But I, I think the genie's out of the bottle. I, I don't think this uh, Holocaust thing is going to endure much longer, frankly. I think there's too much open discussion about it now. I think Nick's book has had a, is having a major impact, and a whole lot of people are becoming more open-minded about it as they learn some of the facts, you know. Most of these things you believe only because you've heard them repeated so often you can't imagine they they could uh, be false. But when you actually look at the evidence, you can discover a whole lot of we t- uh, what we've been told just ain't so. Hey, yeah. Jim, I'm just going to jump in here to say I've got to get off the call. But if you want to continue on. Uh, Fred, I think this everyone. is probably a perfect. Fred, 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 yeah. you arrange this. I want to thank you for it. I want to thank Sam. I want to thank everyone. I think this is the perfect time for us to conclude. And I'll just say how much I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with all of you together tonight. Thank you so Guys, much. Guys, thank you. Jim Fetzer, please spread the link. Thank you. Uh, every, everything that was contained in what he said, it's going to be in the archive immediately after this call, ready to go, plus the link that he has in our newsletter, on our website, for what he did last night for an hour and 20 minutes. Jim, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Get him back again. Thanks, Thanks, all of you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, everyone. Good night. You have to come back again, Jim. Jim. I'll do it. Thank you so much. He will. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Fetzer. A-U-N. American Underground Network. Jim Parmesano. Hey, Jim Parmesano. You there. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.